there doesn't seem to be a tremendous amount of what I would call enterprise product management that goes on at the, the, the cloud native infrastructure companies. They just, that whole, this whole sector just sort of like the, let's, by product, what we mean in this, this context are the developers, the designers, the product managers, the people who they, they figure out what goes in the product, they put it in their product, and then it's in the build or the product. So it seems like, they just sort of like, uh, I don't know the right metaphor, but they just sort of releases just come from this black hole, right? Here's a product. And uh, so in traditional enterprise product management, what occurs is uh, you, at least this is how I was brought up. Uh, basically, the product manager spends a lot of their time, I don't know what percentage, but they spend a lot of their time talking with existing customers about how it's going. What, what their software needs and, and uh, what their needs are and how the software could fit to it. And then they also probably should talk to prospects to kind of see what people are interested in. And then they also talk with like analysts in, in, uh, in the best of all possible worlds where the analysts are an aggregator of uh, what customers need and trends that are coming on to discover things, right? So I don't know, is, is that a, a good summary of enterprise product management, Brandon? I think that's good. That's what people are trying to do, yeah, aspiring yeah. to. Right. So, so here's, so, and, and, uh, you know, I think, I think one of our, our theories of why you don't see enterprise product management, or I should say my theory, uh, in, in the cloud native world. And what I mean by cloud native is like, it's kind of at least, at least new things in public cloud containers, Kubernetes. And, and to some extent, I don't know if this bleeds up into the software development layer. That's, that's a whole nother weird that will make us I should make a side note is there any money in software developers anymore or is all the money in the platform layer like I'm not it would be interesting to I guess Atlassian but there's not really money in the actual like once you open up the IDE and you're writing the code like that there's no money in pure development anymore as vendor wise I don't know if that's true or not Lots of tooling. And then, as we mentioned last time, CloudBees got like $5 billion in funding last, last uh, week or something <laughs> like that. Anyhow, so uh, this, is, that, this is like in, the, in that platformy infrastructure layer, right? And the theory would be that that whole layer is driven by, uh, you know, containers and Kubernetes and, and sort of like Google types of things and running at high scale, all the, you know, Netflix, blah, 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 all these people who built their own platforms that like scaled up really well and all the, all the great nonsense from, from the, from the DevOps and cloud world. And, uh, they sort of developed it on their own and therefore they didn't really need enterprise product management because they were making it for themselves. And somewhere along the lines, uh, they, they did you know, one, one of the, the number one, uh, strategy moves, uh, or one of the strategy moves that's on my, on my number one list of very bad ideas, uh, for most companies to do strategy wise is like, oh, we have this thing that we've developed for internal use. We should convert that to a product. Usually that turns out terribly. I think for most companies, but for some reason, uh, that's kind of what goes on in the Kubernetes world and containers and all of that, right? Like, and in fact, the whole like Docker phenomena was based on uh, Dot Cloud built a public cloud or whatever it was, and they just happened to be using like containers as a way to efficiently run in there. Which, if you kind of ruffle through everything, lots of other people like Heroku and whatever that company is that runs, um, I think Drupal. Uh, instances, it's called, it has some Grecian name like Palisades or Pantheon or something. So they also came across this thing that you have to run containers if you want to have a, uh, a platform. Anyhow, so I might be getting my history wrong, but Dot Cloud was like, oh, look at this thing we developed. We should make a product out of that. And then, and then there you go, sailing the seas of modernization now. It's going to reduce your VM bill by negative, you know, by like 110%. You're actually going to get cash back if you, if you do a VMware takeout <laughs> with Docker. It's magical. Nice. Yeah. Uh, use my promo code, reduce costs, <laughs> 08 or something. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, so they don't, they didn't, this, this whole phenomena didn't really grow up with enterprise product management. Now, there's two other things. We'll see if I remember them. I think, I think another thing is that the buyers, the enterprises, uh, they've only been sort of doing this for like, let's say, you know, I, I don't know if this is an average or 80th percentile thing or some whatever bullshit of clumping, 
But for the most part, the enterprise space has not been like doing this for more than two years at best. You know, there's like Capital One and and a few other public references, thankfully many of which are sort of like in the pivotal world. But there are a few outliers uh, that have been doing it for more than a while. But most organizations have not been running Kubernetes in, in production to support 500 to 10,000 core applications that run their business and bring in billions of dollars. I think I think I just said a very true statement right there. So so then so then you got this problem. The other reason there's not enterprise uh, product management going on in this whole space is that the uh, the buyers, if you were to ask them what they want, they would say, "I want the same thing I've always wanted. I want to run uh, all of my IT, my custom written software, super efficiently. I want it to have infinite scalability and performance characteristics. I want to be able to modify it and deploy it at will." And also, I would like you to pay me for me to use your software, which is to say they don't want to pay any <laughs> money for it, right? That's a, that's a phenomena in all walks of life uh, or business is people actually don't want to pay for anything. If you can give it to them for free and get all the benefits, they, they're, doing, they're shooting for that. And I think this is especially true in the infrastructure software market where, like, um, you know, people are like, I, I'd like to not pay that much for it because uh, let's – existing technology stacks that I have come to rely on, now I am sort of held hostage to paying for them. Uh, or, or as someone who sells software, uh, you know, I would reword that as I have something valuable that I pay for and I'm, I'm doing sort of like classic economics of paying for things that have value that I get benefit from. But whatever. You know, open source came in in the past 20 years and sort of like mind hacked people to be like, you actually shouldn't pay for things that are valuable which I wish that applied to all other walks of life. That would be wonderful. <laughs> so uh, anyhow, so the buyers don't really have, uh, it's not that they don't have opinions, it's that they, they are very new in the opinions that they have. Now, the third thing is, I think this is a good example of how a, uh, 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 I don't know, I'm going to go out on a little rant here. I don't really know if I believe what I'm about to say. But I think this, this is another good example of how the lean startup mindset has like fucked the software industry, right? And the lean startup, there's a really good, like if you, if you read through that book, and I haven't read his more recent things, but the lean startup methodology is like not for enterprise software. Like it's, it's purely for smaller consumer based things where, you know, you're trying, the whole methodology is basically like you're trying to figure out your, uh, product market fit. Or whatever, and and that works really great for like dancing hot dogs and like things like that, where you are kind of like you're co-creating, like this this this. I don't know. It's almost like you're you're trying to figure out what it is someone wants in a, in a very small way. But like, it's hard to imagine how a lean startup thing applies in sort of like I'm building software that people are going to be running for the next five to ten years. And, and there's a very, I don't, it's kind of hard for me to figure out, but there's a very short sightedness to like lean startup stuff that I don't think contributes to doing enterprise type of software that's going to be for there a while. So I think the reason it kind of screws that over is, uh, the, the lean startup methodology is very into like going through this cycle of like continually discovering what the features are and figuring out like, let's put this thing out here and see if it sticks. And as we figure out, some new, I don't know if they use job to be done theory, but as we figure out some new job to be done or whatever, we, we pivot and change the software to do that. But there's almost like, it's almost like the, an Annie pattern in the lean startup that you would sit down with, let's say, your top 10 customers and say, so let's spend the half hour today before we go, uh, we go have a fancy dinner that I'm going to pay for of you just telling me what all your problems are so that as a product manager, I can put them in a spreadsheet and force rank them and say, these are the thing, you know, and also weight them based on how much money you pay us. And these are the features that we are going to add uh, in the next six months, um, which, you know, if the spreadsheet sorts in a way that's good for your company is awesome. So instead, you get this <laughs> thing that you see where there really is an enterprise product management because the software is like trying to discover and create the market on its own instead of filling out the requirements that, that enterprises have. Which I think ultimately leads to that that sort of like weird black hole of product where you're just like, 
where are all the product managers at these keynotes going over like <laughs> what they're doing and which you expect like if 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 you've ever been to like uh you know like a Microsoft conference or some other conferences it's very heavy on like product people i don't know i mean all, all that is a little like scattershot and inaccurate but i think it is this phenomena of like the way product management is done in in whatever market we talk about all the time here the infrastructure software market is very different now. And then finally, yeah. I think, I think that's why, that's why there's a lot of, let's, let's call it clunking, which is to say gears that are not matching up very well. There's a lot of clunking that goes on between the traditional world, you know, your, even your Microsoft's to some extent, although they're, they're a, they're a good exception that proves the rule, but like your, your Oracle's and IBM's and other people versus like Google and also somehow Amazon's in the middle there sometime as well. But there's a weird misalignment in product management expectations. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, to summarize some of that down is just say like today, I think in the cloud market, we have really two, two methodologies going. You have like technology centric and like customer centric. And I think Google and Amazon essentially have built products in house and they have built incredible technologies that are sort of, you know, if you will, trying to push the industry forward in a new way. But nobody just, like no enterprise customer came in and said they wanted it. It was more like these things happened organically. And if you look at those teams of product managers, I just like talk to more people doing it. It's like they tend to come out of like people who actually helped build it, right? They built Kubernetes or they built a lot of the Linux. They're really into the technology because you really, I mean, because something's new, right? Like they had to be those people to drive the products, right? Then you have like, I'd say Microsoft, IBM, Oracle doing the more the traditional, like just what you said, what does the customer want? What would they pay for? But they're not really starting with any specific technological advantage, right? And that they're trying to figure out like, well, you know, should I build the thing that Google's building or Amazon or, you know, should I join Kubernetes? And but they have, a, if you will, a better dialogue going with those enterprise customers. So really what you have here, I think, is like just kind of like this this competition between do Amazon and Google. Right. Do they build up enough expertise to sell to the enterprise um, to continue to like win and dominate that market or do the customer, the other companies like Oracle, IBM and Microsoft, I'll lump them together, say they can they leverage their ongoing discussions with enterprises uh, quickly enough to then build the tech? We kind of went down. We would say like Amazon, Microsoft's number two. So you'd say kind of like each approach, you know, has has kind of a leader, right? Obviously, Amazon's way ahead. And then you'd probably say Google, Oracle, IBM are, you know, definitely a step back, right? They're all trying to figure it out. And then you can even go further and be like, is Oracle and IBM, maybe they're even – Technologically wise, they're so far back. Maybe that's even a bigger challenge, right? Mm. So, um, so we're gonna. So it's just like so. Of the next, and then to your thing about the at, or the uh, the lean startup is like that's kind of what's going on in cloud, right? It's like, and you were talking about developer tools too. It's like I kind of feel like all this developer tools and all of these different you know frameworks are like they're like the new content marketing. Like everyone has flooded the zone with so much white papers and like tutorials and like there's just like no like no one can read all of this stuff. So the next thing is like I'm gonna provide you the best tools, right? I'm gonna give you the best programming language, the best IDE, the best because it's just like that's the next way to, to compete. I'm gonna hire like all these dev advocates. I'm gonna like have them send them all over the world to show you how easy it is. And that's like the, the way, and all they're trying to do is to convince developers, like learn my thing, learn mm. my framework, right? And that's gonna be, and that's why back to the GitHub acquisition we talked about last week, it's like anything that you can do as a company that sort of like gets above the noise, like buying GitHub and maybe leveraging it some way is a lot better than releasing another like white paper on how to build a, a mobile backend on Azure, right? Like it's just like there's just so much of that stuff. It's like, how do I get above that? And so that's right. like a classic enterprise move is like, I'm just going to keep buying this mindshare. So I don't know. I mean, it's like today. You know, I feel like the technology centric Google and Amazon probably get more goodwill in the press, right? It's like, oh, they're doing things that people write about. The mm -hmm. technology is interesting. But then, um, you know, and then uh, the other companies are really perceived as laggers catching up. But there is an advantage to like having the ongoing conversations. Um, but it's never really, it's not sexy. It's not something people want to write about. Well, and, and hopefully, you know, the, the, the Microsofts and, and, you know, Google's and to a lesser extent Amazon are, are using that that developer relations teams that they have to find the the insights for product management to you know ask the the the, 
customers, the developers, like what's missing, what can we do? What, you know, rather than just say, well, here's what I think is going to happen. Here, you know, the the ideally product management is aligned with you know those DevRel people, uh, or at least utilizing them somewhat. Yeah. Well, I think that's how it should work. I would say the, the <laughs> ongoing uh, conversation, the thing I hear most of the time when you just like talk to people, right? Just it's like the dev advocates soundly feel like they have all this information about how things are really happening and no one on the product side listens to them. And they wait, say, and they'll, and they'll be like, <laughs> and they'll say like, I send these long emails and I give all, I mean, obviously these are broad generalizations, right? And they just feel like these guys are still good. And on the product side, it's the, the flip around. It's like, Hey, I have like 8,000 dev advocates all e- emailing me contradictory things all the time. And they, and it's like, and it's, and the, the feedback is always very unstructured. It's an, e- it's an email for, at 2 a.m. from, you know, some far flung place that, you know, is just sort of like half written. And, I, you know, really it's impossible for me to even discern what it is they're trying to tell me. Right. Uh, I, I think, I, I think I think you just described the last like 15 years of your career though Brandon. That's that's what product management is. It's just like here's an unstructured mesh of shit and I have to figure out how to make money out of it. It's just like this I don't know. That's No, you're you're right. And I think this is why like um you know usually the product manager I mean, just, just by definition is always the bottleneck. And so it's like that's why I think you always have this natural friction where it's like you know, I think a lot of the product management team, and I think I'll just try to speak, like, I think they read everything, but it's just like, well, you know, it's not easy. It's like you can't quickly, like, respond to all of it, right? It's like, it's going to, like, mm. the response is going to be in six months, and it's going to be, like, some of the features that come out, and that's never very, like, fulfilling to the dev advocate who just got away from the customer and was just hammered, right? They were just hammered because, like, they didn't have active directory support or whatever, right? And they were right, just right. like, you know, so so you always have these these natural tensions. But I don't think anyone, if, if there's something that no one has solved, it's like just this fundamental idea of like there are all these customer-facing people that are synthesizing information, and it's usually emails and slacks and stuff like that. But like there's just no way to like present that back to everyone like, like yeah, we did listen or we didn't listen. And, you know, and everyone feel good that like something is happening. It's more like it's just like a, a ball of yarn that just like rolls forward. And like sometimes it gets better and sometimes it gets worse. So, so let, let me let me do some uh, what they call this a natural experiment when you look back to like figure something out. I don't know if that means anything, but but like in 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 in, uh, in thinking through all this, it seems like we could pick. So let's let's just take uh, like, I don't know, let's call it cloud native containers and Kubernetes and all that shit. Right. Platforms and. And and so the issue there, just to briefly summarize, is like everyone's got a lot of opinions, but very few people have experience of like it's it's not a um, it's not a stable market where you're just getting uh, incremental improvements and in features that you want from your customer base, which is for a successful product a large part of what a pr- product manager does, right? It's just like as I keep saying, like how do I prioritize improving various features here? So that's not the case. No one actually really knows what they want. Like they've just been given, uh, uh, they, the buyers have just been given this new technology that they didn't even know they wanted because it didn't really exist. And you've got to be all like, Hey man, uh, you've heard of DevOps, right? Well, we're going to totally rearrange how you do IT and how it runs and how it operates because we have this technology that pulls out so many efficiencies and makes makes you much better. And so next thing you know, your 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 product and development teams are just going to be managing everything on its own. So you don't need ITEL and everything else, right? Which is like is like nowadays it seems kind of normal, but that's a fucking crazy pitch to give to like an IT person. Nowadays it <laughs> kind of would expect that. Because going to the point that that I'm coming back to that you're making, there was a tremendous amount of thought leadership over the past I mean, I guess DevOps is 10 years old, but I don't think anyone started paying attention until about six years or so to kind of like hammer home that this is like normal. This idea that you basically don't have dedicated operations people or a process around it, like it seems like the normalness that everyone wants to shoot for. And so just as with done with DevOps, right, like like to get to this cloud native stuff, you have to spend a lot of time going and changing everyone's mind about, about what they expect. So there, yeah. So then you do have a lot of the, uh, the thought leadership and stuff out there. And that's like the primary thing you're trying to drive people towards is like, 
this is that new thing that you didn't really even realize you needed. Hence, you weren't asking for it. And hence, you don't really have need for a product manager. So now we just need to convince you that like, and keep pushing you that this is the way of, of doing this. So that was not a brief summary. But in comparison, like things that I think all of us are familiar with, you could look at, uh, I don't know, you could look at three things, and I'm just going to clump them together. You could look at uh, VMware and, uh, you know, Zenos and all of those people who are doing monitoring stuff. And then, and then I think, I don't know, we'll see if this, this works. You could look at things like Puppet and Chef. And all three of those things were not really changing, fundamentally changing what IT does. They were just like huge improvements in the way that current things were done. So they were incremental is like this technical term, and it's very insulting for people who fancy themselves doing innovation. So I don't mean an insulting way, but they were like incremental improvements in existing ways of doing IT. And so it's sort of like a little easier to pitch. Like you go in with any of those tools and it's basically like this thing works a lot better. Uh, And if you were to draw a quadrant of um, affordability and performance, it's in the upper right hand part of the quadrant. Like, what do you want? Done. (laughs) Right. So now, of course, as as we as we see with like, uh, I don't know, chef and puppet, they can be used as building blocks to fundamentally change the way you think about IT. But your initial sort of thing is basically just like, are you sick of paying for Opsware and Blade? We got a solution for you that's even better and cheaper. Done. Like, And the same thing with VMware and, in theory, yeah. the same thing with Xenos and, and everyone else. I mean, that, that's, that's especially how I feel about a lot of monitoring tools. They're kind of like, you know, oh, here's how everything was done previously. And we do that too, and we added these wrinkles. You know, it's very incremental. Right, and I think the way people would, you know, sometimes, you know, different books and uh, you know, thought leaders, strategy people would say like sustaining innovation versus disruption, right? Disruptive innovation. So, so I think what you're talking about is like if you're entering something new, and just from a product management standpoint, right? It, you know, sustaining innovation works well when you do exactly, you kind of go talk to the customers, like your blade logic customers, like go back in time and you, you understand what they're doing and you're like, oh, we got to figure out how to automate this. And then you look at what, the way they're doing it. And you're like, oh, this is really inefficient. And now I understand exactly why it's inefficient. And there's a new approach, right? That's sort of like coming up, like the story of chef, right? I'm sure Matt, you can tell us that. And it's like, and it's, but it's a very easy, you don't have to explain to everybody like what it is or, you know, what it is. It's just like, this is a much better way to do this. And you, then you start to get to know it. And that's sort of like a very traditional mindset and that's really what i think microsoft oracle ibm ca whoever like that's what they're like quote good at right just like either trying to promote the sustaining innovation or finding the next company that's like promoting it buying them and then like you know using that channel to go sell it right and then the disruptive innovation is you know to some degree like the cloud or Kubernetes or like serverless, right, is probably the newest one where it's like, yeah, you don't even, you know, if we take it on its face, right, and I know we don't have to, but it would be something like you don't have to do any of this monitoring or any of this uh, configuration, right? As long as you package it up this way, it all just works because, you know, it's a new way of thinking. Like, you know, don't worry about any of that. And like some people are skeptical and some people aren't, but it's like that disruption is what kind of like, you know, it requires like a whole new way of thinking. And it's usually not something that like a big enterprise software vendor is going to be easily able to put pitch. Right. And this is why like an Amazon or, or Google, whoever like gets a foothold. And if it takes off, it can be hugely successful or it can just flame out. Right. Like all like various technologies we've seen like come and go. And it's just like, yeah, that wasn't a good idea. So, you know, it's, it, you know, and I think that's kind of like, you see it very specifically in, if you will, the quote, cloud native market. Like it's basically happening in front of us all the time. And that's why it's like, so it's like, and I think in, in the middle of it, it's just massively confusing, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's confusing to everybody, so. Yeah, you, you know, we, we should move on from this topic. Just well, even, but uh, just as 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 is my, uh, my uh, what, what, what is it that, that, that monarchs have? They have some privilege, but there's some fancier name to it. As is my right. Uh, I'll add one, one last thing. Like, it is uh, on, on a seemingly unrelated topic. I've been thinking a lot about, like, the style of, of talks and presentations and content that I give versus, like, what I see other people giving and uh, how mine are too, like, uh, overly dense and complex and therefore not as good, so to speak. 
uh, as as keynotey things. Like I feel I feel like I feel like on one end is like me, and on the other end is like a TED Talk. And I don't want to be completely like TED Talk, but I know that like I need to get closer to TED Talks than I currently am. And and so you know <laughs> what, what I what I mean by that is like I read a lot of even some of my favorite like books of tech the tech world right like uh, off the top of my head I think my favorite book currently that I've read is like uh, Mark Schwartz's A Seat at the Table and there's a lot of great stuff in there but it's sort of like if you were to write out and what to do next actional bullet thing I think you would like end up just going to lunch because you would be like i still don't quite understand what the fuck it is i'm supposed to do like he has a really good section on like how to do better status meetings for managers like how you review progress but the whole rest of it is just sort of like you should do it differently and like contractors and governments suck and i mean i'm being flippant it's just like i said it's a fantastic book but it's not like actionable and i think i think maybe that's because what he's describing has no actionableness to it, right? It's just like, what you need to do is change your, the way you think about this, and then you can join us in a journey of figuring out what the fuck we're doing, right? Well, like, and, and anyway, and so, so that's like, I, th- I think I need to do more of that, like, uh, just sort of like mindfuck type of stuff. And, and that might actually be more effective than like, and I don't mean this to be like promoting my way of doing stuff at all, but here's just like, Here's just a punch list of shit people did that seemed to work, which, uh, and, and it's also especially not durable, right? Like to, um, I should put a link to this. One of my favorite, uh, not eye rolly. Uh, there needs to be a word for this where it's like, that's totally true. And it makes me sigh is like, there was this write up of how some company like had converted their stuff to microservices and they went back to a monolith. And you're just like, to use, I guess, my favorite, uh, presentation title of all times from Dr. Nick, like, oh, I just finished learning Chef. Now I have to learn Bosch, and it feels like oh, we just put we just put microservices in place, and now we're supposed to do monoliths again or serverless or whatever. And so uh, I don't know if you're in this flux period, maybe it's better just to focus on like you should open your mind, Quade, and be very accepting of these things, and just leave off then, not really give any actionable advice. So how could how if you wanted to actionize? any sort of like system you are running, get very specific, precise ideas of what's going on with it. Monitoring maybe <laughs> is, is there someone who might be able to help out with that? Brandon? I do. I think, I think we know someone now. Uh, we like to thank uh, Jada dog for sponsoring this episode. They're, they're back and uh, we obviously love them as a sponsor. And so this episode is sponsored by data dog, which is a monitoring platform for cloud scaled infrastructure and applications built by engineers for engineer or engineers, Datadog provides visibility into more than 200 technologies, including AWS, Chef, and Docker, with built-in metrics dashboards and automated alerts. With end-to-end request tracing, Datadog provides visibility into your applications and their underlying infrastructure, all in one place. And you can sign up for a free trial and get a T-shirt if you go to www.datadog.com SDT. Again, that's datadog.com SDT. And, you know, this week they do a lot of things at Datadog and monitor lots of stuff. But I know there was a, a new release of a Kubernetes, right? I think that was last week. So um, it, has, it has been a week, right? <laughs> it has been a week. So uh, I'm sure everyone has that in production. You know, I know I updated everything I have uh, and it's running Kubernetes. But uh, if you want to uh, uh, monitor it, they have a whole blog post on all the different performance metrics that they do. So if you're trying to figure out if your Kubernetes is up and running, you should uh, go read that blog post. They'll tell you how to do it. And of course, you can sign up again at datadog.com slash SDT and get a free t-shirt. And again, thanks to Datadog for sponsoring this episode. Well, you know, speaking of, of you updating your Kubernetes, Brandon, how, how's, your, how's your quick con call app going? How, how are sales? Are you going to be retiring yet? Sales, I mean, it's up like a thousand percent. I mean, that's, <laughs> it's, it's just incredible. The, uh, the, uh, <laughs> you know the key the key is to always have like no, no division by zero when you launch uh-huh, right to uh-huh. have like one sale in the bag and then uh you're week over week so yeah so of course you can go uh if you want to just uh, support me in uh, the podcast you can go to quickconcall.com and uh, download my uh iphone app and i have actually had a couple listeners try it out and send me i've actually got a bunch of uh feedback on it which is like fantastic so it's uh it is you know i mean 
sometimes, you know, we talk about software in lots of different ways, but it's kind of fun if you, especially when you're like working in a small team or a team of one, when you kind of, sh- you can uh, ship it and you kind of like, you know, you see everything. Cause like you, you ran the strategy, you built it, and then you get to see the metrics of people who did come or not. So the, so it makes the retrospectives like really short. You're like, Oh, that wasn't a good idea or that was a good idea. So, so it's been uh, a lot of fun. Learned a lot about the, uh, it's been fun to like, just learn about the app store, right? Like, you know, cause like I've heard people talk about, or like not the app store, like how to use it, but just like how to submit things to it you're like oh okay like wow apple's like they, they they're on their shit like they they like they, they enforce all their rules like i've, I've worked right. in other places where it's just like you know you like kind of just puts you know like you know you just get the release out when you want to get the release out right you just kind of at the end you just be like well we'll just like overlook that thing but no apple has everything automated in there they're very polite and very very good at telling you what you did wrong which i have to say i like but if you if you stay within their guidelines they then uh hook you up but you do get to the i i now understand like the, the waiting for review because people used to talk about that it's like mm. but then there's this point where they're just like you're just in like waiting for review and there's like there's nothing you can do you're just like well oh. i guess i and it's uh and I could see like if your whole business, if your livelihood depended on this, I could understand how frustrating it would be to just be like, there's this person somewhere in Cupertino who will just arbitrarily decide when I can uh, begin to sell my product or uh, software. So uh, I sympathize now with those people uh, like I haven't before. I, I like it. Maybe, maybe you're lucky and, and they're in Austin. <laughs> you can go visit them. And you'd be like, hey, hey, Apple person. Yeah, let me hook you up. Let's go get tacos. Review my app. Let's go get tacos. <laughs> yeah, that, that, should be your, that should be your next app, Brandon. Let's go get tacos. And it will help a group of uh, N plus one people determine where to go get tacos. You know, because everyone's always like, I, oh, I, I don't that, care. I don't know. I don't know mind where we go. Damn it. That app already. Well, exists. I was going to say, the more part that. The the uh the podcast that I want someone to do, and I, I assume it will never happen because the MDA is like I want someone like to interview like an Apple app reviewer, like someone that's maybe done it for two years, right? And just I just think that's just like a good couple hours of content of like mm. all the apps that they see, how they do it. I, I can only imagine the responses they get from people about when the after giving a rejection, uh, some of the arbitrary like rules that, you know, I don't know, maybe they aren't arbitrary to them, but sort of it's just uh, just like if someone could, you know, we almost need to like like this American life for tech to like go in there secretly and like get somebody off the record to do it because mm. I think it would be a fascinating look into like just because I think the app store, like somebody posted the graph. Uh, the day I was like, I don't know. I think sales were like 32 billion. I don't know. It's like it was so staggering. I couldn't believe it. So it's not an insignificant amount of money, right? I mean, you just look at it and you're like, but like, it's just this black box. Like the review cycle, I think, is a very much a black box that probably lots of uh, tech people would be interested in. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I, I thoroughly distracted us from our uh, our, our deep uh, ream of news items, but we should we should at least get to uh, to to one of them, if not a few. So there's. There's, there's a couple of acquisitions. There, uh, Alien Vault was acquired by AT&T, which it seems like, uh, you know, uh, it's that, that the synergies there seem to make sense. AT&T sells to a lot of small and medium businesses as well as large. And, uh, you know, I think I might have actually even worked on, like, acquisition cases with the, this kind of logic. And it's just like small and medium businesses need security as much as anyone else, but they don't want to pay a lot for that muffler. So we need something that's easy to use and like uh, also affordable. So we probably need a SaaS thing that's effective, and you can just latch that onto your existing channel. And like, hence, great by channel, I mean you've got an existing customer base and people selling stuff to them, whether it's automated or human driven. And uh, then you can just kind of add that as a thing. And by virtue of you owning it, you get all of the profit. I mean, once you subtract out the acquisition price or whatever, but that's that's some complicated thing for your CFO to worry about. But you get all the uh, all the profit, and you just attach that to your existing sales, and then hey presto synergies. So we'll see how that works out. And uh, yeah, I mean that that's one of those markets. Like I just are people buying software from their telcos because it it happens in Australia too, and I I just you know it's weird to think about like the SMB market as you know you get it from my telco. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think, I think the answer is is yes. In in the sense of, (laughs) you know, like 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 I mean, I'm going to construct something. But if you went to like uh, South Congress, right, where there's, let's say, thirty stores and restaurants, 
like all of them in theory, like you go in there and not all of them need this. This is this is a bad example because they're not big enough, but it's sort of like if your telco went in there and they could also sell you like a retail solution that didn't suck, which I don't know if it does or not, like they would just go in there and be like, I'm hooking up your internet. Do you want this thing that just charges you 2% of sales to charge all credit cards and does everything, right? Like all those all those little iPad driven right. things that we use. And I'm I'm pretty sure that like a a significant amount of those people on South Congress would be like, yes, <laughs> right. And so the <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. the the difficulty in in acquisitions uh, that at least I my mind is alluding to in, in response to you is like classically telcos are terrible at that, right? Like they get and and what pops to mind is like a couple of years ago I had to finally convert my sbcglobal.net account to a yahoo one or something and so there were all sorts of there's always there's a history of just cockamamie like telcos hooking up to like adjacent services and it just comes out terrible right and so you know right you're basically what you would be saying is like what if at&t owns stripe and didn't screw it up somehow and and both sides didn't screw it up right like stripe didn't get lazy and just stop innovating and then AT&T didn't like ratchet down costs and do enterprisey product management to remove all the the wondrousness of Stripe, right? But but I'm sure Stripe would love to have access to the AT&T customer base on a daily basis just to like yeah. hustle shit. Yeah. And so, I don't know, well, I mean, it, that that kind of logic applies to that's to me that's sort of like the core of of small and mid-market like strategy thinking is like how do I attach this incremental spend to an existing customer? And that's kind of sort of like the main reason you acquire in that market, I, I think, because it's so if you can make that work, it's like super easy money. Like you don't have to really like try. It's it's my favorite kind of strategy, which is the don't fuck it up strategy, which is you just and, you know, it's <laughs> probably also expensive to do that because it, it could. Anyways, I'm I'm trailing off here. So on the well, other, I think, you know, on uh, that, go, go it's, ahead. It, well, I was just going to say just on, on alien vault though, I, I do think it maybe even a, a simpler take is just like, you know, AT&T is trying to sell a lot of different services to small and medium sized businesses. Security isn't necessarily going to win the sale, but they want to have a story. Right. So it's like, and you look at the estimated price, I think was around 500 million between four and 500 million. So the company took 110. So, so we'll say that's a five times, you know, multiple. And so, so you kind of look in there and say, that's not a huge multiple that certainly the venture capitalists were hoping for. And it's in a super um, hot area, right? Security is very well known. So, so something's happening here where, you know, investors kind of felt like time, it was time to sell, even though it wasn't the quote unquote, 10 times earnings and that this is, you know, as good a situation as they're going to get. And I think if you kind of just think of like, this just goes on the price list that the AT&T, you know, rep or their digital marketing uses, it's like, we have all these services and we have security, right? And it just sort of plugs the hole in a, uh, and it's easy, right? And the, and alien vault is very much set up to deal with small and medium sized business, right? You know, get on the phone, help you get on the phone, do, do small deals, do them really fast. So, so I kind of look at it like, I guess it kind of worked out. The only question I have here is just like why, why if I don't want to say gave up, but like why Alien Belt felt like this was the best opportunity if security is indeed, you know, kind of like this growing market. Something yeah. else must be happening there that they just felt like they weren't in the right position. And they've been around for like a long time. I think over 10 plus years, gone through a couple different management teams. So, you know, maybe it was just time. But uh, it's it's weird to see someone sell into a market that you think is growing exponentially. So that's the only question I have about it. Yeah, unfortunately, we'll probably never know, which is <laughs> um, yeah. Sometimes you know it could be something even simpler about why these these sales happen. Maybe it was just like the end of the ten year fund, right? For a specific VC, and they're like, we want to like exit this, we want to return, we want to close this fund now, we want to return a certain amount of capital. So let's get it going. So sometimes you know none of these things have anything to do with the technology or market. And I know you know we can talk a little bit about CA. Right, because that was like another acquisition that sort of came out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just the last thing on, on, you know, I don't know anything about Alien Vault, so what I'm about to say doesn't apply to them. But I remember when I was looking at security companies doing M and A stuff, uh, the it was very rare to find a security company that had like was was like a two or three trick pony. They basically like would have this one thing that they did, 
and they would end up being really good at it, and then they would never really evolve past that, which... And again, I don't know about Ellie involved, but like the issue with that is even if you're in an exponential market, uh, you're like your value maybe is not as great because you're not actually like innovating and doing new things. And so like in the security world, it was always like, what's the hottest new thing going on? And then people would be like, oh, well, this person just makes sure that like, you know, your firewall isn't penetrated and, and they would seem boring. So I, I don't know. But yes. So excitingly, we've saved the best news for last. Our, our friends at uh, CA, not to be confused with Computer Associates, which they are definitely no longer called, but at CA, uh, it looks, speaking of chips from last week, Broadcom is buying them, which I think, uh, <laughs> I, I, I think, uh, talk about your three-dimensional chess sort of uh, strategy reverse engineering. That's, uh, that's, that's a doozy of one. Now, I think the figures are, this is all public companies doing stuff, so we have a, a finer sense of the figures. It's... 18.9 billion, which you could round up to 19 billion if you wanted to. Although, you know, I always think like, where are you going to find that spare $100 million? That's not insignificant. But 18.9 billion uh, was the purchase price. I think it was, it was, it was cash, as I remember, driving their share prices up to like a 20% premium or something, which, which sounds nice. Uh, but yeah, so, uh, and now, now Broadcom was trying to uh, acquire Qualcomm, some other com. Is that right? Did I get that right? That's anyone, right. Anyone? Okay, but then that yep. fell through because of like China or something. I, I don't I don't follow the chip market. It was established <laughs> last year. China. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's I what, think the official was uh, antitrust uh, reasons, but that's but I think China's the other yes. problem as well. Yeah, and so I guess I mean, uh, well, I mean, first of all. So they're acquiring a software company that uh, gets gets most of its revenue from mainframes, which which is fine, and uh, gets uh, I don't know it's not fifty fifty, but the split is uh, I can't do that math, but they get they get a fair amount of money from non mainframes and uh, services and other things, and uh, so I you could look at it as sort of like hardware company uh, wants to add on software, like when Intel bought McAfee and uh, other things like that, which I think they, they subsequently sold off. Or, I mean, another, I mean, I'm just or, kind of spinning through stuff. The other thing that sometimes happens here is uh, the, the company, the acquirer, was, was told they need to figure their shit out by the board, uh, which is to say, like, diversify and make revenue in a new way. And so you line up, you prioritize your acquisitions. And one of them might be, say, to buy another chip maker, and that would that would uh, change your numbers and uh, help you figure your shit out. But then if that falls through, you want a backup plan, and the next thing you know, you're buying CA. Like you're sort of going a whole different uh, route of what you're doing. I have no idea if that's the case, but that that does sometimes happen in acquisition stuff, which can be weird. But well, I I have no idea. I mean, where how how into software was Dell when they bought Quest? Mm. You know, because that that I wouldn't feels know anything about that. Kind of similar. I mean. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, that that was one of the few parallels I could think of. I was like, people were just like, wait, that's a big acquisition to make if that's not your, you know, your core competency. Um, but yeah, I mean, so far, like every analyst or everyone's response has just been, wait, what? <laughs> right. Well, I think the, as we look at this, it's so hard just with this one data point to like make any sense of it. Cause I think on that face of it, it's just, doesn't make any sense but to your kind of like analogy there matt like if a year from now they've you know packaged together three or four other software acquisitions and then we were kind of thinking yeah. of them just like a private equity firm that's like well because i mean the fact that they could pay 18.9 billion in cash is to your point what cote was making it's like hey they got to do something with this money right they can either pay dividends or or you know d you know grow in some other way so if they're going to if you will sit down and we're going to roll up some significant set of software assets starting with ca um and they, they have this money and they just want to use the you know basically use the profits of ca to then go to other acquisitions and as i like to say like the big win for ca beyond just the the financial return would be potentially being re you know removing what i like to call that uh, strategy burden right it's like now ca doesn't have to go out and have earnings but, calls yeah. and explain everything and so so maybe they can just like 
you know, get throw off a lot of cash. And then Broadcom's like, we're going to go roll up two or three other things. Maybe they follow a path like Dell. And we really feel like we can become a, like some kind of conglomerate. I mean, maybe that makes sense. But like just looking at this one data point <laughs> as uh, what was it, Steve O'Grady? Like, it was just like, wait, wait it's like, it's like, what? It's just, uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't really make any sense. I mean, yeah. it's and, just and, weird. And, and and Broadcom, I mean, if, if that's Broadcom's strategy, aren't they just co-opting CA strategy? Uh, which is, you know, acquisitions are your R&D to, like, just keep building this this big conglomerate portfolio. I think I think to some extent, but I think CA was at a point where, you know, if you will, kind of out of ammo. Like, they're not big enough to the point where they have so much, you know, they can do small acquisitions, but they can't, you know, there was that talk of, like, BMC, if you will, buying CA, right? Like, you know, where right. it's like, you, it gets to a point, like, you know, the game is so big, right, that you have to have, like, you, you can't just have a couple billion dollars. You need to have tens of billions of dollars to start to roll together these gigantic things, if that's what they want to do, right? So, yeah. um, but, yeah, but I do think, you know, I mean, the, the guys at CA, and the way I understand it at CA, it's been a little bit since I've been there, and somebody, but the way someone explained it to me was CA had, like, a one very large shareholder that had been with the company, like, almost since the beginning. I think they even referenced it in one of the things, and that that person was, like, fine with, like, just, you know, wanted them to keep paying the dividend and was really kind of against the sale. So, um, so because I always think, like, well, who were these guys bidding against? They, I don't think they were bidding against anyone. It was sort of like, to get, <laughs> yeah, to get um, this investor to move right i think they really had to say like you know like without this acquisition i don't think anyone had predicted ca is going to go up 20 percent in the next say five years right so it just becomes right. like so um and for some reason you know to them this it makes you know it, it makes financial sense but uh this is definitely one to put a pin in and we should revisit this in like a year yeah. <laughs> and yeah, see yeah, what happens yeah, I mean, so, so uh, it's crazy uh, so, so one, I, I'll never be able to find the link to this, but this reminds me. I think, I think it was the annual shareholder meeting two or three years ago uh, for CA, and there's this, there's this adorable old guy who gets up and uh, you know he's like, I've owned uh, CA for a while, and can you explain to me what DevOps is? Or no, it's not even DevOps. He's like, can you explain to me what the cloud is? And uh, it's, it was a good exchange between their CEO and someone, you know, old man yelling towards cloud, as it were. Wow. Uh, yeah, it, it was it was good stuff. <laughs> I, I don't know how I, I must have been an analyst at the time watching that. Uh, but, but but yeah, I mean, I think I think I think because now you watch CA calls for fun. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> for my personal education. But, uh, you know. You know, as 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 I do the uh, the sign of the cross on me to to uh, uh, acknowledge our, one of our patron saints. As you're not alluding to the halo effect thing here, is like, you know, in comparison, even though we might guffaw at it, like we don't really think it's too bonkers that Google, like at one point, like owned a bunch of robot companies and is working on a self driving car, right? Like that's another instance of like it's the other direction. It's like this not pure software, but this software-ish company. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait, what? You have robots? Like, how does that fucking make sense? And so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. But, like, our take on it is, peop the aggregate take on it is that, like, Google is great and innovative and they're going to solve our robot problems and, and driverless cars. So who knows? Maybe this hardware vendor, like, uh, will do something. And also, I think to your point, right? Like, if there's uh, if there's more acquisitions, then... Sure, maybe maybe they build something up. I guess I guess the thing I would struggle with is uh, historic. At the moment, I don't think there's. You can be all like clevery and say that Apple is some kind of chip company, but like there's not really like chip companies that do software. And the last ones that were successful are like Sun and IBM, who like you know, arguably had power and spark chips and stuff like that and also did software. But that that would be a fun play. See how that pans out. So well, yes, we'll Oracle have to check in again. Picked up that sun. Yeah, yeah, sun that's hardware, true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. But uh, yeah, I don't think it's, you know, blowing anything out really. It's just kind of maintaining. Mm, maintaining. Well, any other uh you know we have some other news items that that you can look at the show notes at softwaredefinedtalk.com slash one forty one. There's a uh, there's a fascinating overview. I don't know if fascinating is the right word, but uh, an overview of like how there's some lawsuit over Basho and and uh, their investor. And you know, I read through it and I didn't quite understand what the the strategy was for the uh, the asshole investor who was trying to lock everyone out. Like, 
I don't, I don't think they explained how this activity was going to be profitable, like what the plan was. So that, that's kind of missing. Right. That would be fun to know. Uh, and, uh, also speaking of share prices, I haven't read the paper yet. Uh, and, and by yet, I mean, I never will. Uh, but there, there's a good overview of trying to uh, figure out like what exactly it means to own a share of snap. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is a thing I'm always, uh, bumping up against is like, if you're not paying dividends and, uh, basically, so if you're not paying dividends, the only reason you buy stock is so that you can pass worrying about its value to someone else. Like there's no, nothing happens except you're going to sell that share to someone else, which is simple and basic. But if I think about that too long, it's a weird, confusing thing. And so someone apparently wrote a paper trying to figure out like what the point of owning snap stuff is and, and what, what that value actually is. And I, I don't know. I didn't understand the conclusion. So maybe I should read that paper, but it's, it's a delightful read about the dancing hot dog. (laughs) And uh, I don't know. There's some other links. You should go uh, check that out. So also uh, you should come. It's in a couple months to spring one platform. You hear about all the, we'll have a little bit of enterprise product management going on there, but you, you can hear about these early people who've been figuring out how to do uh, all of the cloud native stuff. It's September 24th and 27th. There's a, there's a code you can use on the show notes to get $200 off registration, but uh, that should be pretty good. And then we also have like, I, I'm now going to go to several of these. Uh, we have our, our regional spring one tour uh, roadshow and there are uh, all sorts of places the rest of the year. And then uh, also as a reminder, before we get to recommendations, you know, you should join our Slack channel. We've had some discussion of these things and, and other stuff. And, uh, you know, you just go to softwaredefinedtalk.com slash Slack. And uh, you can sign up to that thanks to uh, no SSHJJ. And we have T-shirts that you can sell. And if you email us your mailing address to stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com, we will send you a sticker. And Brandon... Who, who, what are some recent stories from Software Defined Talk sticker land? What's going on out there? Well, we got a, a nice uh, email from Emric from uh, uh, Romania. He asked us to send a sticker. He said, you know, we could send uh, across another country off. So, of course, I appointed him the official uh, Software Defined Talk ambassador of all of uh, Romania. So I always uh, enjoy sending stickers to far off areas. And uh, I may even have to go to the post office soon. I think I'm almost out of international stamps. So, mm. uh, and then as Cote as, as you officially take over Amsterdam, you know, just you being in Amsterdam and Europe, I'm sure will uh, up our uh, sticker give out rate by a couple thousand percent in Europe. So, yes. uh, you know, really at this point, there's uh, most of the major. Well, I was gonna say, I guess you know, we'll, we'll say Matt Ray's all of. I was about to say Asia, but that's wrong. All of Asia Pack, you know, Matt Ray's got covered. So yeah, as you mentioned. Love to hear from everyone. Send us your name and address, and we'll definitely send you a sticker. I, I left a my little pile a little pile of stickers at uh, the front side offices last night when when I was visiting with uh, with our friend Charles. So if there's any new front side listeners, this is the podcast. You see some stickers, you're like what is this sticker? But uh, you're listening to it right now. That's that's what it is. Um, yeah, and we should just quickly thank uh, everybody that came out to. Uh, we had the official first uh, software defined oh, talk right. uh, happy hour. I'm uh-huh. gonna call it. A- I'm going to call it a huge success. You know, we had, I don't know, probably 10, 10 people, uh-huh. yeah. um, some, some listeners, some, some friends of the show. Uh, it was good to see everyone in person. Um, was, uh, we, I think we did talk about all the topics I mentioned. I think there was a lot of discussion of frequent flyer programs, not that much Costco talk, a lot of technology talk. We even talked about getting new Macs uh, and, oh. everyone was, was oh. convi- and everyone was convinced that, you know, Apple wasn't going to do anything. And then today... Apple uh, <laughs> announced uh, new computers. So Matt Ray, you can thank Matt Ray, who literally, yes. I think, bought his computer yesterday or just uh, days ago. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I'm just jumping to picks right now. That's my <laughs> my anti. <pick. laughs> oh. So yeah. So I, I just to tie off on happy hour. It's, it's cool to, if uh, I don't know. Well, be, you know, obviously we'll have people all over the world here soon. So if you ever want to like do a little meetup, if you're interested or you need, uh, just email us and we could probably find a way to do some happy hour, at least maybe in an area near you. You know, we never know. That's so good. It was well, fun, though. Thanks well, for everyone coming out. Uh, well, Brandon, good job growth hacking. We had a thousand percent growth from our last meetup, I think. So, uh, you know, I'll, absolutely. Just just doing it. So speaking of Matt Ray, what is your recommendation yes. this week? 
Well, um, I, I'm actually not that bitter about the Apple coming out with new hardware today. Because uh, I, yeah, I did receive a new laptop from work on, on Monday. Um, Apple has a two-week return policy. So I guess I could, in theory, return it if I wanted to. Mm. Um, I'm not, though. Because uh, uh, I got the last of the MacBook 13 inches without the touch bar. So it's kind of what I wanted. Um, and substantially cheaper than uh, uh, the new ones. And, you know, uh, it, it should be fine. I... I I have yet to like try out the the new keyboard. I've seen a lot of people complaining about that. Apparently, Apple has yet another new keyboard with the ones that came out today. So, whatever. Um, so, so you know, you I, know, guess my, I think my I think Matt, kind of you a could, you, if this whole uh, software thing doesn't work out, you could totally be a wire cutter reviewer. <laughs> wire cutter says <laughs> new Mac laptop should be fine. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Well, I, you know, I, I mean, that's that's kind of how it is. It's like it's it's not going to be terrible. It's going to be good. It's probably going to be better than anything exactly. else I would have bought. So whatever. <laughs> yeah, this just didn't buy our stuff. <laughs> I will I will commend you, Matt, for having a very measured take on it because I, I like to I like to watch Twitter when this stuff happens, especially now that you know I'm sort of following the Apple uh, uh, ecosystem. developer yeah, ecosystem yeah. more, like especially the developers. And it's like I I, I turn all of the comments into this, uh, and I feel I this is where I feel for the launch people at Apple. Like I think all of the 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 app developers, like they tend to like uh, it's first like it's the complaint is like. God damn, this API is such shit. I hate this API. And then it's like they release a new API. It's like, God damn it, they just changed this API. I can't believe I have to update it. I feel like the same thing when I was reading the computer stuff. It was like people are like, ah, oh, this is just a, a, a tiny upgrade. They should have done more. And it's like, you know, if they had like sprung like a new ARM based MacBook requiring everything to be recompiled, people would be freaking out. So uh, it's, uh, I commend you for just t- being very measured of like, you'll be uh, fine with the old one. <laughs> and then, and frankly, the new one's probably a little bit better like well, there really I, yeah. is nothing else to say about it right don't I, I, there's no yeah. reason to, to be upset in any direction here no i mean I, I wasn't on the market for a new laptop when i got a new laptop right it was just <laughs> it decided that you know four four and a half year old laptop needs to be replaced yeah, yeah. which is it. funny which is i think is how everyone buys laptops you're just like well when it's your turn you just get the one that's available right and i even thought like uh phil whatever the guy the marketing guy like he, his tweet about it was just like better faster and then link and i was like man there's a lot marketing can learn from this just very simple it's better it's faster and if it's your turn to upgrade good for you if not see you in three years Mm -hmm. the old uh the old uh refresh cycle that's uh that's that's a key cycle to know about in the the laptop world so how about yourself brandon what do you have to recommend yeah i've uh Checked out this uh, In the Dark podcast. I guess it's been around for a while. I, I had not uh, heard of it until recently. So there's actually two seasons. And it's, uh, I guess, broadly under the true crime genre. But I think it's like a different take on it. They don't spend as much time kind of on the who done it, more on looking at the systems that, if you will, both investigate and apply justice. So kind of the first season sort of about how a local sheriff's office goes about an investigation. And it's pretty fascinating. And the second episode sort of uh, about a, I'll just say the second one has this great kind of teaser. It's about a person that was tried six times for the same crime in Mississippi. And they kind of examine like how this happened, what's going on and like how someone can be tried six times. So it's, it's kind of a fascinating look into like, you know, if you will, the wheels of justice in uh, in different parts of America. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, I found them both really compelling. So it's kind of the thing that you can uh, probably turn on on a, on a long flight and just like make your way through six or seven episodes and, and be pretty captivated by it. Mm. Well, this week, uh, I, I just found this this morning. I, I have a bad habit of, uh, of of wanting to look up pictures of commonplace books, which are basically... I don't know. There's some fancier term for it, but it's just sort of like uh, it's like scrapbooks and like little notes that people have taken over the centuries. Nowadays, uh, you know, something like uh, a Boing Boing is kind of a commonplace book for for the Internet. But uh, they're always fun to look at, especially for like, you know, famous people just to see like stuff that they wrote down and pictures that they kept. It's kind of like as numerous headlines would say, it's kind of like a Tumblr thing. And apparently, H.P. Lovecraft had a commonplace book, which uh, I think has been published, but is now out of print. 
And uh, but there's some scans of it you can find online. And there's also I don't know if it's a complete one, but there's a tran- there's a couple transcriptions of some of the parts which are just like his one-liner story ideas. Uh, so it's fun. I'll put some links to it in the in the show notes, but you can go look at pictures of them. Like there's there's one that's a um, it's like an expanded envelope, and I and I haven't been able to read it yet. It's in cursive, which I basically can't read anymore. But uh, I think it's like notes on the uh, what is it in the in the mouth of madness? I forget if it's mountain of madness or mouth of madness, and so uh, it, it looks crazy. It's good stuff, so you should check those out. Well, as always, this has been Software Defined Talk. If you didn't hear me say it several times before, if you want to get the show notes for this episode, browse past episodes, figure out how to join our Slack channel, any stuff that, that we got going on, you should join, uh, you should, I'm sorry, you should go to softwaredefinedtalk.com. And uh, this is episode 141, so if you just put 141 at the end of the URL, you'll go directly to the show notes. And uh, yeah, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye. Matt's not here, so I'll do his part. Bye.